Let's get some of that movie chat. Credits roll by and I tip my hat. Credits roll by, I want to know more right away. Let's have some of that movie chat. Credits roll by, tell me who did that. Life in the credits is where I want to play. Welcome to Life in the Credits. This is the show where we learn about entertainment by chatting with people who work in the industry. I'm Susan. And I'm Ben. And today we're discussing the film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And joining us today is our special guest, Lily Park. So welcome, Lily. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Lily. Hi. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. You guys are so fun. Yeah, we're so excited. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We are very excited to talk to you tonight. So can you start us off by telling us a little bit about what you do in the entertainment world? Oh, I mean, I think it can be best summed up as sitting alone at a desk and screaming into an empty bag of Doritos. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of Doritos? Oh, ranch. Yeah, oh, cool good ranch. Good choice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but what I do is I would describe myself as an emerging screenwriter mm-hmm. that is feeling her way <laughs> up to the top, <laughs> trying to get there. Yeah. Um, and it's a it's a difficult road, but, you know... It, anything that happens doesn't it people call it overnight but it's never overnight yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. but um yeah i i'm enjoying the journey so far awesome very cool um can you tell us about any specific projects you have worked on or you are working on yeah um i'm working on a couple of things right now so right now i think the priority project would definitely be the warner media 150 oh i guess now they're called warner Warner Brothers Discovery, (laughs) but it's essentially a, it's a program where I think it can best be described as actually being paid for development. Oh, nice. Um, But where you're, you know, they give you a a very generous grant to basically then send you out into the world and to write a pilot or a feature to actually shoot the proof of concept and make the deck and then come back to them, pitch the project. If they pick it up like any other network, right? Um, great. And if they don't, you keep that money, you keep the product that you generated and then you can actually shop it elsewhere or they'll help you shop it elsewhere. It's a pretty good deal. No, um, that's awesome. But it's right now I'm working on it as in the form of a limited series. Okay, oh, cool. Yeah. So fingers are crossed. Yeah. Good luck. That's exciting. So how did you become a part of that program? Well, it was in definitely not the ordinary journey so they already had a director that they liked Jim Vendiola who shout out to Jim he's such a great guy and he had proposed an idea and had some um, existing projects I think that had attracted them to him but then as he started looking at what he was dealing with decided okay like um, I need a creator I need a a larger female voice to come in because it was going to be female centered and was basically willing to hand over the reins of that creative process. And then went back to Warner and said, look, like, I know you picked me, but what if we were to make this with her instead? And um, we all talked, we rehashed the contract and then we were all a go. And Jim had found me because I had written a pilot that had done well called the bliss killer. And, um, which was actually also my gateway into Brillstein and Verve representation. And so he read that it was basically the exact voice he was looking to replicate for his project. And it just happened to be also that we were both part of the Chicago film scene. So um, even though we were meeting over Zoom, it was kind of nice to at least think in my head, he's only a mile away. Yeah. So he basically was the person that brought me in and credit to him though, really for, 
seeing a, a, a voice and saying, look, like best give it to the person that maybe has experience being in that position. Yeah, that's awesome that, yeah, that he not only saw that, but was willing to be like, Hey, you know, like we need to bring this person in if we really want this project to be good. That's really cool. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I give him a lot of props for being like, look, this is, this has to be the essential authentic next step. Yeah. Cool. Fantastic. Now, when you're talking about writing a pilot, uh, the pilot for those people who don't know is the first, it's the first episode of a series, right? Yes, it is what you hope will, will be the brochure into wanting to buy a larger trip into your mind. Yes. But often it seems like nowadays you have to do both a pilot and a deck. Okay. So what's a deck then? So yeah, a deck being, you know, anywhere between like 10 to maybe like 20 pages. Um, what what used to be called a Bible hmm. is now a deck where you've outlined your characters, where the story's going. Um, usually the outline or structure of some future episodes, if not all of them for the season, it's packaged with a lot of visual cues so that I think it makes it easier for the executive to then take it on to their higher up and say, look, like this is right. what we're looking at. Yeah. Cool. So do you construct that deck yourself or do you work with anyone on like the visual aspects? Well, bringing Jim back into that. So yeah. I actually paid, as I got to know Jim and we started working on the this Warner limited series together, he was showing me some of the artwork and the deck that he had wanted to put together. We obviously made adjustments along the way, uh-huh. but um, then I was my own pilot. I was like, look, I'm not a graphic designer. Yeah. Uh, can I pay you to do the yeah. deck for me? <laughs> but and and outsourcing decks and and mm-hmm. finding people that have a a more uh, graphic lens to work with. This is now I'm finding to be common, yeah. which is again a good thing and a bad thing for people that can afford to do it. It's mm-hmm. great, but for those that are new, uh, dropping a few hundred, if not a thousand dollars on a deck, yeah, not so easy to do. Right. For sure. Yeah. That, yeah. Definitely. So back 10, 20 years ago, the networks had, you know, a a fairly regular season, right, of TV where it's like 24 episodes, hour-long drama, whatever, right? But now it seems like there's so many different formats, right? So there's like a season could be three episodes or it could be 10 or it could be 13 or it could be 24. How do you know what, you know, when you're working on your deck, how do you know which one to go with? You don't. (laughs) (laughs) sometimes things start out as one thing and then they become another i wrote the bliss killer with the intention of it being a one-hour drama series and the way the character development needs to unfold and it's just naturally rich to be a one-hour right Mm -hmm. um the idea of trying to squeeze all of that character development and journey into what would be two hours of time for a feature yeah it, it, it would just be such a an ugly cut to the quick. It not you would see nothing, you would feel nothing. Mm-hmm. It's it's not as saturated as it needs to be. So with that, I knew what that needed to be. Right, mm-hmm. that was not going to be featured. That was going to be this. Now, as far as its journey, because in my head I had already mapped out what a season one, two, three, and four would look like. I knew we were not talking about a limited series. I had enough already on my hands material and uh, sand to dive into where I knew that we could spend a lot of time there. So I knew we were not going to be thinking, I was not thinking in my head limited series. Right. So I knew one hour and series. But on the other hand, I actually recently just finished my first action drama. Mm -hmm. And um, 
you know, I just started to go out to pitch it as a feature, but I've been asked by multiple companies, would you want to consider this as a series? Oh, wow. Which means, you know, taking it back and mm-hmm. basically pulling apart the pieces and re-Frankensteining it so that yeah. it could, again, leave enough space for character development, um, mm-hmm. build a, a story. But because of the way I want to chop it up, I see this as a 30-minute drama series. Yeah. Mm. Not a one hour. Yeah. Um, I think with the topics I'm going to be covering and the level of engagement I'll be seeking, I'm going to be targeting viewers that have either um, that cover a couple of things. One are a younger brand. And I also want to cover people that are time crunched. I want to be yeah. able to catch people that are on their way to or from work using it, watching it on their lunch hour mm-hmm. and to build it in a way where even if you're st- you watch three episodes at a time over a week or you watch just, you know what I mean? Yeah. We're all going to get the kick at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I never thought about writing a series from the perspective of like, when when in the day you're expecting people to watch it so like yeah i want this to be something people can catch on like watch on the way to work or watch it at night a whole, a whole bunch of episodes at once that's really interesting i've never thought about it from that perspective of, well it's like yeah if, you, if you're someone that's a working parent like right. i am yeah you know I'm, i mean i'm juggling a lot of different mm-hmm. things the idea of sitting down sometimes for a whole hour right. on a wednesday yeah. it's like why don't you just murder me in the head because i don't have <laughs> the attention span and i don't have yeah. the focus and also it's like i'm gonna have to watch this with one eye open because the other eye will be starting to fall asleep right um this idea i think of targeting age groups and saying oh i want 20 somethings and i want 40 somethings or i want mm-hmm. 50 and ups this is archaic. This is not the basis for how you get dollar signs and added value eyeballs on your screen. Right. What you do is you basically, I think you need to target situational viewership. Yeah. So I want to target parents. I want to be able to target um, commuters. I want to be able to target the people in their twenties and the forties with maybe like shorter attention spans because they're busy. Right. Right. Or just because they're jumping from screen to screen. And then look at it like that and try to cast a wider net because mm-hmm. more people have time for 30 minutes than maybe right. an hour. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a really cool way to think about a demographic is more like time constraints versus age because I think that makes a lot of sense. Does that influence the actual story at all? Yes. I mean, for me, it does. I always know for sure how I want to start it. And I generally have a pretty great idea of where we're going to end. But trying to think about my audience engagement again just totally nerdy way of looking at this does affect how i want to maybe chop slices of bread yeah Yeah. so back a little bit you mentioned chicago film scene um can you kind of tell us about your path and how you got to where you are today i was wishing on a magic lamp one day that i found at a garage sale um i Grew up in Michigan, suburbia. Okay. And I didn't grow up around a lot of people that wanted to be filmmakers. I don't even think I knew anyone that did. I might have been the only one. I was also like maybe the darkest person on my block. Everyone was Caucasian and my parents were pretty traditional. And when I decided to come to Chicago, that was considered a pretty hefty ask of my parents. Um, And to trust me with that. And when I got here, I wound up in art school at Columbia College. Shout out to all those people that are with me right now. And it was a learning experience. It was my first time not being at home, but it was also my first time, I think, being around people that were like-minded. 
that really wanted to engage and talk about Clint Eastwood movies yeah. and, mm-hmm. and Ford, you know, and old Westerns and like why I love Rio Bravo, uh-huh. you know, things like this. <laughs> Whereas back home, it was like, not only we were not going to talk about those things, like no one knew what I was even talking about if I right. did bring it up. It was like speaking Chinese. <laughs> so I was finally in this environment where I was completely knee deep in people that were creative and active thinkers that wanted to discuss the arts. It was incredible. And I then got lucky because I applied for a job over at Second City yeah, um, to be a writer, writer's assistant and I got it. Um, and that was a learning experience in and of itself. And it, I think in many ways kind of showed me that I wasn't prepared, but in, but in a good way, like right, these right. are, these yeah. are, these are items now you need to work on. These are, mm-hmm. these are things that you need to get better at. Um, and so I am really grateful for that experience. But while I was there, they did say like, Hey, um, you're a nice person. You're not really a sketch writer. You're not really that kind of comedian, but yeah. you are good at writing drama and things yeah. like this. And being here in Chicago, you know, again, just we're not flooded with the Hollywood group. Mm-hmm. So the, I think the competition didn't simmer for me. Okay. Um, and really what pushed me forward was just being more, I think, knee deep in life experience, having yeah. to survive and uh, claw more to get noticed and more recognition. Because like out there in L.A., right. You can meet anyone at any time. You can find a friend of a friend, but here it's not as easy. Right. So if you're going to make those relationships count, you're going to have to work really, really hard to get them. Yeah. Being here in Chicago, the the film scene is also pretty independent. You're yeah. talking about a lot of filmmakers mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. take it very seriously. They cut teeth hard here. And I, I they're just such diehards. They're mm-hmm. truly academics of the film industry and of cinema. It's incredible. Yeah, totally. So when you are writing, do you have a process that you go through to like sort of get yourself in the zone or, you know, what is your, what is your tactics for getting, getting into that uh, uh, headspace? I don't know if all writers do, but I definitely have a process. I usually need to walk around or ruminate, if you will, like around my, like I've probably killed more Fitbit minutes and steps (laughs) just walking around my kitchen and like looming around the halls. And then if I know I'm going to be dialogue rich, I definitely, I think almost like an actor, I'll get into character. I was writing some dialogue for a pretty dark character that was going to be pretty bad, pretty fast. And so I was listening to about three hours of Tool and had the lights pretty dim and was had like some I pretty messed up stuff on YouTube playing. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure if the government looked at my <laughs> list, I would be immediately flagged. You might be on some kind of list. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's definitely a flag her. But you know, then you finish that. And then, I mean, for me, I need to come out of it, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, then I'll put like some Golden Girls on in the background. <laughs> the lights are super bright. I'll eat five donuts. Yeah, sure. And I'll make, I mean, I'll I'll feel much better. But it's definitely, I, I definitely take a process of getting into character. I, I have a couple of other friends that I think that do that as well. They've talked about it. Um, someone was recently telling me that she puts on wardrobe 
Oh, wow. <laughs> Interesting. I don't go that far. Yeah, that's impressive. <laughs> does she have a good, cool closet full of clothes? She does. She's <laughs> like, oh, I bought this thing. Or she yeah. like, had to do something where the, the character worked at like a fast food place. So she like had stolen a McDonald's <laughs> hat or something. <laughs> I get into character like that. And I right. also do a lot of research, though. Yeah. I'm pretty research heavy. I come from a, a research background, so it's important to me. Cool. Yeah. Is that a goal to get representation for you or would you rather do all of that on your own? Oh, wow. You, ben, why do you just hit me like this? Um, <laughs> I want to I want to dig in here. <laughs> I want to know. It is. I mean, I don't I don't want to speak for all writers, but I can definitely tell you that the majority of writers that I know, the vast majority mm-hmm. ha- are trying to sink their teeth into representation. Yeah. Okay. And the reason it's such a, a an ugly scourge is because one, it's hard to get read. You yeah. know, agents and managers, they already have clients, right? And they have to read their clients' tower, tall length of work, right? Yeah. And then you're bringing new people and potential new people who you have to read. And it, I'm sure it's just like, a, quite literally an eyesore and so to get read is very very difficult and mm. then to get read by a good place is even harder and then to actually get the representation to have them say yeah we see something in you or yeah, yeah. you're gonna do great also just like the trifecta of all the things that you usually don't fall into place right I want to say that it, as far as the impact on my life Verve changed my life yeah. Um, I had an opportunity actually through Coverfly to moderate a panel that they wanted to host. And they asked if I would do it. And I said, no. And then they convinced me and I said, sure. <laughs> and it was basically the difference. It's like to host a panel about what's the difference between being a manager and an agent. Okay. And one of the agents at Verve was on that panel. Oh, nice. And afterwards, I was like, hey, would you want to? <laughs> 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 because, like, when am I ever going to meet? Right. Yeah. You're going to I'm here in Chicago. Yeah. yeah. You're out there. You're never right. going to see me. It'd be an easy shot. No. Yeah. Right. Because they don't have to look at you. And he was very polite and said, sure. Like, but it could be a while. Yeah. Right. And then I think it was like a day or two later, he said, I read it. I loved it. Surprise. Great news. We're going to give you four agents. Wow. That's awesome. It's a moment that is burned into my memory because it changed my life. It was like, I found a unicorn. Everyone said it didn't exist. And everyone said it wasn't going to happen, A, during the pandemic, and B, to someone that uh, at that point hadn't been staffed in a room yet. But I was literally um, in the middle of burning my HelloFresh. I had one shoe on because I can't have taken the other shoe. It just wasn't kind of feeling like my day. Yeah. And I remember just like that smell of like burning onions. And all of a sudden I get the phone call and it says California. And it looks like it could be like someone selling me something. Right. But what the heck? And I answered it. And as soon as they said, oh, can you hold for verve? I was like, oh. And I knew I was oh like, God. oh, my God. And... Uh, and the rest is history. But my kids looked at me like, why is she crying? <laughs> but yeah, Verve 100% changed my life. I love them. If there's such a thing as like the Jerry Maguire of agencies, they're, yeah. they're, they're a heart of gold. Yeah, that's awesome. That's fantastic. And it does really show the importance. Like sometimes you just have to take that risk and be like, what's yeah. the worst that can happen? They just won't talk to me. But you got to you got to take it when it's there. You got to take that opportunity. That's really cool. How do you balance everything that you have going on? Because you mentioned you have children and you have a corporate job and all these writing projects. How do you find time to write? 
I want to say that what I do is not recommended, but <laughs> what I do is I basically have made a decision to cut my sleeping hours. Yeah. Um, until the day I don't need to cut my sleeping yeah. hours. So I'm a pretty consistent writer. I do it every day, weekends included, in Christmas, birthdays, but you know, it comes at a price of mm-hmm. where there are times I miss friends' birthdays or, you know, maybe I don't hang out with my mom to watch Masterpiece Theater <laughs> as much as I should. <laughs> but yeah, basically at 9 p.m., 9.15, I turn off everything and I sit down and I write and I don't stop until minimum 4 a.m. Okay. Wow. And if I can go until 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. I will. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um lately I've been pulling more all nighters and then not sleeping at all and taking some naps and then trying to catch up on sleep on weekends if I can. Yeah. Um, but that's just because I've had extra grueling deadlines lately okay. for development. Yeah, I've been doing that pretty consistently for a very long time. I would like to not do that anymore. Yeah. If I say I have this dream, if I say I'm really willing to do anything to get it, well how far does that measurement reach? Right. right? And yeah. so far I haven't found an end. Yeah. So just to clarify, you pretty much don't sleep then. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, so just, yeah. So to be, yeah. So I'm juggling, yeah. I juggle kids. Right. I, I juggle my day job. I'm also a refugee advocate. I was going to say, we children. wanted to ask you about your yeah. advocacy work. So that's another facet. Yeah. yeah. And, and I absolutely love them. And then, you know, on top of that, trying to have some kind of social life if I can, right. but then also making sure I hit the screenwriting hours, at least like eight to 10 hours a day. Yeah. Wow. Do you have a favorite moment from your career or like an unbelievable moment? I would say though, honestly, burning my hello fresh and having Verve call me. Yeah. That's awesome. Weekday. <laughs> I'll never forget. I mean, honestly, it's, it's like texture part of my soul now. Yeah. I'll never forget then snatching out my kids, mm-hmm. hauling them into their room and just falling their eyes, falling my yeah. eyes out and saying, mommy finally did it. It was great. And um, I had a similar feeling when I got signed to Brillstein as well. Mm-hmm. And they're also incredible. And um, when I got that call that Brillstein was looking to also rep me, I just there's this radiating yeah. feeling of like, okay, like it's all going to work out. Yeah. That happens. Yeah. I don't think you naturally get in everyday life. Mm-hmm. It's not just affirming, but it's reassuring. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like telling you like, okay, I'm on the right path. Like this is something I'm supposed to be doing. People are responding to what I'm making. Like that's got to feel awesome. Yeah. And just like that abundance of joy and excitement of being like, okay, the journey is real. Like we have lights, we're driving on it. It's cool. It's happening. But then also that flip side of calling your parents and being like, oh, so I got signed by Verve and Brill scene. And then being like, what is that? (laughs) (laughs) Who are they? (laughs) What advice do you have for people who want to get into the writing world or just the entertainment world in general? For anyone that's looking to at least um, get into the screenwriting world, the most important thing you can do is let it all roll off your back. Mm. You know, if someone loves your work, take it with a grain of salt. And if someone hates your work, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. If you get a hundred people to say, we have notes, (laughs) you're familiar with that. It doesn't mean anything. It's not personal. It's, it's a thing everyone's going to say to you, whether they love it or hate it. Yeah. It requires a certain disposition to, Mm to be not only tolerant, but to be comfortable with that. 
I would like to recommend to all writers that are coming up that you get yourself one or two or three really good mentors. Mm. Yeah. Because you are going to learn more from them than you can imagine. There are rules that they know that have nothing to do with college or university or how you hold the camera. They understand the rules of the game and how to be present within the experience. And you're only going to learn it from them. Let's get to our feature film. Today we're discussing the 2019 comedy drama Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It was written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, and it stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie. It won the Oscars for Best Performance by an Actor in a Supporting Role and Best Achievement in Production Design. So, Susan, before we get into it, can you give us a quick breakdown? What's this movie about? Yes, so this is late 1960s Hollywood, um, specifically 1969 is the year it takes place. And we meet Rick Dalton, who used to be a huge star. He's now very reluctantly reaching the end of his career or like a kind of a lag in his career where it's changing a lot. We also meet his stunt double Cliff Booth. They are very good friends. And um, we watch them kind of deal with Rick Dalton's slowing career, but also at the same time, this is also all taking place in Los Angeles. Also at the same time, we meet Sharon Tate, Roman Polanski, and Charles Manson and his followers. Well, do we actually meet Charles Manson? You see him. You yeah. see him, yeah. You but you mostly you him. mostly see his followers. Yep. And you see all these seemingly random char- people. They're all, all, I don't think Rick Dalton's a real person, but um, obviously Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski are. They all cl- end up colliding on August 9th, 1969, which if you know the history of Charles Manson and Sharon Tate, that's a very important date. And this movie takes a different spin on history (laughs) without giving too much away but also we'll probably end up spoiling the movie while we're talking about it so pause and go watch it if you haven't seen it yet (laughs) great yeah and Lily, you chose this movie for us to watch today why did you choose once upon a time in hollywood Wow, there are so many reasons. First of all, I love it because I think it's almost like a hollywood yearbook Mm -hmm. right it really kind of i think illustrates the way we wish it had been versus maybe the way it really was. Yeah. Um, it's in, it's interpreting the past rather than, I think, reproducing its realities right. fully. <laughs> and of course, because it puts such a huge spotlight on the value of nostalgia yeah. and I think also the limitations of it. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, you do meet, like, mo- I would say most of the characters you meet in this movie were, are real people, um, but they play characters and the history is so different in it that you really kind of forget that Yeah, it's like historical fiction kind of. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and Quentin Tarantino does that a lot where yeah. he'll take famous history such mm-hmm. as World War II, you know, yeah. and Glorious Bastards and totally, I mean, make new characters within that world, but then totally change history for mm-hmm. the sake of a good story, right? Yeah, I mean, his those particular films, are, I think really generally set in like almost like an alternate yeah. um, fictional reality where it's totally. almost like correcting wrongs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> but actually speaking up, you were asking about like the Manson character. I mean, that guy, um, I believe that actor, his name is like Damon Her- I want to say Damon Harriman. Mm-hmm. And he actually plays Charles Manson in that. And then later in Mindhunter. Oh, so he wow. got to be Manson twice. What a creepy wow. person. The most specific type of typecasting. <laughs> I'm sure that Damon's a really nice person. Yeah. <laughs> but then, like, you've got Timothy, is it Timothy Oliphant? Um, yeah. 
and I think he's so brilliantly cast yes. Um, yes. because I, what he had come off of Deadwood and yeah. Justified. Yeah, yeah, we um, played a cowboy character. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we talked about that when we were watching it. Yeah, I mean, it just it's just like it's just like here's a slot, here's a perfect fit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no brainer. Yeah. The the film to me is like the peak of escapism and mm-hmm. catharsis, and um, I think it really does a great job of like I think putting a great imprint of a cut of culture yeah yes. like a, along a very specific point in time and mm-hmm. and even though it's an alternate ending to so to speak it really i think in some ways uh, highlights the sadder reality even though maybe it's intended to yeah not do that oh, but totally. it just really yeah. is like that reminder of how you could have had this yeah. woman be this actress and in mm-hmm. As old Hollywood and new Hollywood were kind of merging, and right. really could have been part of new Hollywood, but didn't have that opportunity. Yeah, right. that's true. Yeah, and uh, Margot Robbie does such a great job as Sharon Tate. She's so like just she's glowing, and like everyone loves her. She's just the nicest person in this movie. She talks to everybody. So yeah, it really does. At the end, when you think like how it was supposed to happen in real, like in real life, it's like oh man, like. Mm-hmm. You really think about the contrast of events and how, like what, like you said, like what could have been with this person who was such like a bright star at the time. Right. Yeah. I also love the relationship between Rick and Cliff yeah. in this movie. Mm-hmm. To me, that's like the the heart of the film is, you know, Rick is this actor, but he's so insecure and he's so concerned about, you know, where he's, where, where his career's at. And Cliff is just this guy who's just sort of like along for the ride yeah. and just sort of does whatever <laughs> needs to get done. And uh, I mean, Brad Pitt won an Oscar for this role mm-hmm. um, and he's great in it. I mean, he kind of plays Brad Pitt, right? I mean, he's, <laughs> he's just sort of like walks around and, bees, and he's just cool and wears moccasins and, you know, just sees through stuff. Well, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's brilliant how Brad Pitt's character is has a very antagonistic relationship yeah. with the past. Yeah. While Leonardo DiCaprio's character has a very idealized relationship mm-hmm. with the past. Yes. And thus making them complete opposites yeah. of one another, but yet they're living in right now for the same reasons. Mm-hmm. To, totally. to, to feel like they have a sense of purpose. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, but like Cliff can, he recognizes danger, you know, right? Like he knows like there's something weird up at the ranch where all the, the Manson family is hanging out and he's like, and he and he just walks up and investigates and it says, listen, I'm going to go check on this guy and he doesn't let anyone stop him. And yet when like the same, the same people come to Rick's house, he just sort of freaks out and goes back to drinking his margarita and doesn't think anything of it. So, I mean, you're right. The guys could not be more opposite. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it's it, it's kind of a fun juxtaposition, right? Because right. Yeah. his character is the stuntman that does, like, maybe all the real heavy lifting and, right. you know, these kinds of projects. But then also translating into real life, you know, Brad Pitt's character does, like, all the heavy lifting when it comes to, like, bashing in the, the Manson yeah. family but yeah. then only to have the star show up uh-huh. at the end with like the glorious <laughs> moment you know yeah, yeah. exactly flamethrower <laughs> <laughs> which is like the most killer funny mo- moment ever 
but I, yeah, I love how they reflect one another, mm-hmm. but in these very different ways. And I think the wardrobe does a great job with that as well. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. if you look at some of the outfits that Leo wears, which are much darker and mm-hmm. they're obviously moving into a different part of the times, whereas Brad Pitt's characters, colors, they don't really change, no. right? They're constantly bright yellows yep. and blues. It also, I think, helps keep some of like the suspended age of Brad Pitt alive in those scenes. Yeah. Um, but of course, Cliff Booth being also a weird, dark character because mm-hmm. he's charming and of course he's nonchalant. But then, you know, there's, they're not, they don't say it's Natalie Wood, but. Right. But it's this idea of, that he may or may not have killed his wife, Natalie. On a boat. Yeah, yeah. On a boat. <laughs> I mean, definitely it rings a little like uncomfortable bell. Right. Yeah. Like there's something going on with him, but they never say it. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It definitely pushes some uncomfortableness, which is mm-hmm. fun. Um, but and that's what Quentin does. But then also in classic Tarantino fashion, he doesn't just give us a great movie, he gives us a great soundtrack. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah oh, the yeah. music's amazing in this movie. Yeah, it's it's absolutely it's so much fun. But yeah, I think when you think of the escapism piece and you think of the catharsis piece, mm-hmm. it's just to live all of what you're seeing through the lens of Tarantino, I think you can, you feel like his personal tethering to everything we're seeing. Yeah. Right. You know, and how he's experienced maybe or perceived that golden age of Hollywood. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And there's so many famous people. I mean, you know, Quentin Tarantino, I'm sure can call up a lot of actors and get them to be in, but even these small parts <laughs> are just stacked with, with famous, famous people. There's some people in it who aren't quite famous yet. Like, is it Margaret Qualley? Oh, she yeah, yeah, yeah. She was, like, definitely, like, yeah. hitting that and, high note. Yeah. yeah, and Austin Butler, like, he's in it. Right. But, like, who's now Elvis. Tex, yeah. right? He plays Tex in Correct. this. And he, I don't think and he was. Luke Perry quite, is in it? Yeah. <laughs> All of these famous people are just in it for just a, you know, I mean, and, of course, his friends have mm-hmm. small parts in it, like. With her and his daughter. That's Maya Hawk. Maya Hawk yeah. is in it, who's also Ethan Hawk's daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, she's for Stranger Things. That was before she was, I mean, but before she was, not she big was yet. famous. Like, yeah. Um, a lot of, which is cool when you think about it, it's this golden age of Hollywood. Sharon Tate is this up and coming star, and then Quentin Tarantino cast all these up and coming stars to be in the movie. That's cool. Like, yeah. Parallel, but. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. like, and they're playing a like really obscure parts yeah. like, uh, like Dakota <laughs> Fanning being squeaky the character squeaky, yep. <laughs> who by the way like in real life wound up going on to try to assassinate Gerald Ford yeah um, just like but these women like Lena Dunham like all these mm-hmm. women just playing these young women just playing these interesting obscure roles that ultimately in the end just wind up shouting down at Brad Pitt as he leaves yeah. right right <laughs> Yeah, it's it's interesting to see them and like all together like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it, especially that scene at the ranch. I was like, oh, that's her, and that's her, and that's her. Like, that's it was crazy. Yeah, and you have, yeah. of course you have Michael Madsen in there, yeah. and you know, like some Tarantino like mainstays, right? Mm-hmm. But I love all of the little West, like the asides they do, where it's like they're actually like filming the old shows. Those are so funny and so bizarre, um, but they fit into the story so well. Mm-hmm. And just watch uh, to watch sort of you know Rick's career and how it's changed, and they're also just very very funny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a spotlight on 
nostalgia, right? And the character lens for right. our leads pushing through change and yeah. uncomfortable transitions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have a favorite scene in the film? Honestly, the last 10 minutes are yeah. so sparkling. <laughs> I mean, They're wild. Violence can be overrated for sure, but I think it's effervescent in the yeah. hands of these actors. Yes. Yeah, it's so brutal. It goes so far that yeah. it ha- it like it either had to go that far or had to scale way back. So right, like right. they couldn't, there's no middle ground there. So they really had to take it as far as they could to make it good. Yeah, And I think that yeah. was actually, a, I know this sounds silly, but maybe, mm-hmm. and I think in some ways it was essential to have yeah. the violence be so extreme yeah. and almost like a caricature, right? Because right. Right. It, re- it reminds us of two things. One, this is a movie and not how it went. Yeah. Right. I mean, we might have wished it went this way, but it's not how it went. And I think right. it, that drop mm-hmm. of like extremism kind of reminds us, OK, this is a movie. Yeah. And then also at the same time, because even with what they do, what human nature did in the reality of that moment really right. was maybe, you know, it really was absolutely worse. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. totally. Yeah. <laughs> it's played to the extreme to the point of it being funny, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because even even the the punchline at the end, where you know Leo, all the cops, and you know Cliff goes off to the hospital, and, the, and then the neighbor comes up and it's like, "Hey, everybody okay?" And he's yeah. like, "Well, except for the hippies." Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like it's such a funny moment. Yeah. But yeah, to your point, it, it's a huge juxtaposition from the actual violence that's mm-hmm. so famous. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think my I think one of the other moments I love, which I think was a bit more ad-libbed, was when Leo is in his trailer. Oh, with just, yeah. Yeah, just kind of like really coming down on himself. Mm-hmm. And yeah, at one struggling. point he's like talking at himself in the yeah. mirror, like pointing his finger at himself, like the eight whiskey sours. <laughs> yeah. <yes. laughs> but no, that makes me thirsty. Um, yeah. but yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio does such an incredible job of just, I think letting it all come out and even though it's a scripted moment it feels authentic yes in in the root of where it might be coming from and so it's Mm -hmm. it's more than just tasty it's fun yeah yeah Yeah. like you could you could see Leonardo DiCaprio having maybe not an extreme of a moment with himself in his trailer but definitely has had a moment in his trailer where he was just beating himself up oh for sure (laughs) like part of me thinks I think he connected with that. Maybe that really yeah. is how it yeah. shakes out for him. <laughs> it does seem like very on the nose and like a very hard worker. I can see right. him being intense like that, right? Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Susan, do you have a favorite scene in the film? I mean, I agree. Those last 10 minutes are incredible. Yeah. And then Cliff Booth, when he's flashing back to why he cannot be helping with the current movie Rick Dalton is working on. Where he's being in a fight <laughs> yeah. with Bruce Lee. Yep. Yeah, that is a great moment. Well, yeah. if you think about it, right, like people that stuntmen, you uh-huh. know, they really are kind of like our real life superheroes, though, yeah. right? You yeah, know, totally. Taking all the beatings and the grunts, yeah. the, you know, the, the grunt work to make it seem all palatable on film. It's yeah. they're getting it done, right? Yeah, absolutely. This movie is really well cast. I think they did a yes. great job with casting. Yes. <laughs> I also, I think my favorite scene is actually, um, I love the guys, all the scenes you guys mentioned, but I also love the one where Leo sits down and is talking to a little girl who's reading her book. Yeah. And they have this yes. like really like this amazing like moment of connection mm-hmm. where she's asking him and then he's reading this Western, which doesn't really seem like much of a story at first, but then it's revealed that 
it's about a guy who's like sort of losing his edge and he kind of knows it. And then he starts crying because he realizes that mm-hmm. it's, he's talking about himself. Right. And it's such like a, a strange scene because he's talking to this little girl and then, and then she's like really rough him with him at the end. And she's like, we're going to talk about this later because I know you're upset. But it's just great. It's just a, a really wonderful character moment that I really enjoyed. Yeah. Well, and it's always fun to see, I think, characters like that be vulnerable. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And to to see that like a like an unspoken truth that we already know. We like to finish up our show today with a game that we're calling Turn of Phrase Tarantino Edition. In honor of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, we're going to see how well both of you know the dialogue of Quentin Tarantino films. Lily, you're playing against Susan. So <laughs> here are the rules. I'm going to take turns reading a line of dialogue from a Quentin Tarantino film to both of you. If you know it and you identify it correctly without any help, you'll get two points. If you need multiple choice answers, I will offer you a few options. And then if you identify it correctly, you will get one point. If you get it wrong, zero points. Okay. I have 10 lines for you to identify, five apiece. And the person with the most points at the end will win our prize. And Susan, what's our prize? I did some Life in the Credits merchandise. Yeah. yeah like a shirt or a mug or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Lily, you said you wanted to go first, correct? Yeah, I'll go first. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm like sadistic like that. <laughs> it's perfect. Here's your first line of dialogue. You probably heard we ain't in the prisoner taking business. We're in the killing Nazi business. And cousin, business is a booming. Inglorious Bastards. That's correct for two points. Nice. Well done, Lily. All right, Susan, you're up. Okay. Question number two. Yep. That woman deserves her revenge and we deserve to die. But then again, so does she. So I guess we'll just see, won't we? Is this Kill Bill? It's not, is it? No. Volume two. It is Kill okay. Bill volume two. <laughs> Very like I got good. I on that kind of though. Nope, two points for Susan. <laughs> All right, now, remember, you guys can use multiple choice answers Oh, if that's you right, don't I forgot know. about that, yeah. All right, number three, back to you, Lily. Okay. Normally, I would say, auf Wiedersehen, but since what auf Wiedersehen actually means is till I see you again, and since I never wish to see you again, to you, sir, I say goodbye. Multiple choice, please. All right, your three multiple choice options are Django Unchained, Inglorious Bastards, or The Hateful Eight? I'm going to say Inglorious Bastards. I'm sorry, that's not correct. No! That's what, what I would have guessed, it? too, because it's Django, Django Unchained. Ah. Yeah, Christoph, oh. Christoph Waltz plays the German oh, in that one. That's so tricky. That, that is a tricky yeah. one. Good, that is good, tricky. Good guess. All right, Susan, back to you. Okay. You touch my brother with that steak, biker, and vampires won't have to suck your blood. They'll be able to lick it up off the floor. Can you multiple choice? Yes. All right. Your three multiple choice options are From Dust Till Dawn, Kill Bill Volume 1, or Pulp Fiction. Dust Till Dawn. Is correct. Okay. <laughs> so, Susan, you get one point there. I have I've never seen Dust Till Dawn. Oh, Dust I guess Dawn. I know yeah. what we're doing later I know, I need tonight. To watch it. <laughs> All right, number five, back to you, Lily. I don't tip because society says I have to. All right, if someone deserves a tip, if they really put forth an effort, I'll give them a little something extra. But this tipping automatically, it's for the birds. As far as I'm concerned, they're just doing their job. Pulp Fiction. 
I'm sorry, that's not correct. What? The answer is Reservoir Dogs. Oh my gosh, um, yes, it is. Oh my gosh. Oh, I, I, was, I would have guessed so Pulp ashamed. Fiction too. That that's sounds a, like Pulp Fiction. It's Well, it's Mr. Pink. It's yeah. Steve Buscemi at the, at the right. top of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you're right, you're right. Sometimes the movies yeah. can run together because yeah. they're written by the same person. Yep. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, Susan. Number six. Oh, by the way, the scores are Susan three, Lily two right okay. now. Wow, this is brutal. All right. This is a hard game. Susan, number six. Okay. If there's one thing this last week has taught me, it's better to have a gun and not need it than need a gun and not have it. Can you multiple choice? Absolutely. Your options are Kill Bill Volume 1, True Romance, and Jackie Brown. True romance. Is correct. Okay. I'm <laughs> not expecting to get that one. All right, Lily, I need you to get back in the game. Oh, man. This is the best I've ever done. <laughs> We're on question number seven. I can't Susan's at four, and Lily, you are okay. at two. Seven out of ten. Seven out of ten. Okay. You each have two left. Okay. All right, Lily, your next question or your next quote is. I'm 56 years old. I can't blame anybody for anything I do. I need multiple choice. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, is it Django Unchained, From Dust Till Dawn, or Jackie Brown? Jackie Brown. That is correct. Well done. Nice job. Yay. All right. Closing the gap. Okay. Four to three. Susan, <laughs> back to you. All right. When you come to the end of the line with a buddy who is more than a brother and a little less than a wife, Getting blind drunk together is really the only way to say farewell. Yeah, can I do multiple choice? Yes. Is it Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Reservoir Dogs, or Kill Bill Volume 1? Duh, it's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That is correct. <laughs> I just know that when we just watched it. <laughs> All right, Lily, back to you for question number nine. Okay. Now, Daisy, I want us to work out a signal system of communication. When I elbow you real hard in the face, that means shut up. I think I know it, but I would like multiple choice. You got it. Is it Django Unchained, Hateful Eight, or Jackie Brown? Hateful Eight. That is correct. Nice. All right, Susan. Last one. Okay. You read the Bible. There's a passage I got memorized. Ezekiel 25, 17. The path of the righteous men is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of the darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down this upon is... thee with grave vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison <laughs> and destroy my brothers, and you will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon you. I, like, want to say, I'm, like, so nervous. I, is it is this Pulp Fiction? Yes, okay. it's Pulp Fiction. <laughs> I was like, I know it is, but, like, what if it's not? It is. It is so famously Pulp oh, Fiction. Yeah. I've never been so resentful of someone else getting a question I want. <laughs> I know. That's how about your very first one of Glorious Bastards. I was like, no. It's probably the movie I know the best. <laughs> well, Lily, I'll tell you what. I, I will not repeat the scores, but I will say that. You, you are such a joy. We're going to send you a t-shirt anyways. Yes. <laughs> oh, you guys are such good sports. I love a participation prize. Um, and uh, I know you were just trying to make Susan feel good about her win. So we appreciate I that. Think, I think 
think she got harder quotes than I did. Hey, that was just luck like, of the draw. There were so many. I was like, I have no idea what that is. That's just the way it goes sometimes. You know what? Before I go, I just want to say for all the emerging writers out there, just it's going to be okay. <laughs> that is an excellent pin to the episode, I think. I love it. That's fantastic. Yes. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, it was, was an great. absolute pleasure. Yes. Thank you. All right. I'll be in touch. Thank you. Life in the Credits is hosted and produced by me, Susan Swarner. And me, Ben Bloom. It's executive produced by Michelle Levin. The music is written and performed by Steve Trowbridge. You can hear more of Steve's music at TrowbridgeSongs.com. The show logo is created by Melissa Durkin. If you'd like to support Life in the Credits and get access to exclusive perks, you can do so at Patreon.com. If you'd like to follow or get a hold of us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life in the Credits or shoot us an email at LifeInTheCredits at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. So, fun fact, we're actually just going through your Rolodex for our guests. (laughs) Everybody we talk to knows you.